So Lisa, a little while ago, I sent you a New York Times article, and I, I normally pick up on some of the best uh, titles of articles, but this one was really strong. Uh, it was called Women Are Calling Out Medical Gaslighting. And it talks about how studies are showing that female patients and people of color are more likely to have their symptoms dismissed by medical providers. And so experts are advising us to keep asking questions. So I, I definitely dove into this article. It came out in March of this year. Did you get to take a look at it as well? I did actually, yes. And I have it starred in my New York Times app. And I noticed that one of the experts they spoke to is a professor here at the University of Colorado in Denver. And so mm -hmm. I thought it might be neat to reach out to her and see if she would come on the pod. Oh, well, apparently she said yes. So I am so excited about hearing what she has to say about this topic. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Shauna and I are super happy to introduce Dr. Karen Lefty-Spencer. She is a medical sociologist and professor, professor sorry, of health and behavioral sciences at the University of Colorado, Denver. She researches medical decision-making, health disparities, and patient-provider relationships, including medical gaslighting. Um, she's examined these issues across a range of medical and psychiatric conditions. Currently, she's focused on the social context of end-of-life decision-making in the U.S. and is a wealth of knowledge around this particular issue. So we're happy to have her. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus? The iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit for purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code LIVEFEISTY15.
So, Lisa, I've been uh, trying to keep up with lots of different things in the, the health professions and the medical profession. I've tried to keep up with lots of different things around the disparities of uh, social determinants of health and the ones that directly connect with my communities, being a woman, being a Black person, et cetera. And I think it was very smart of us to bring someone that's an expert in this area where we are not. Um, So Dr. Spencer, we're so happy to have you on the podcast with us. And we do have a few questions because we're doctors, but not in this area. Um, And so given that you are truly the expert um, on this research, but we'd love to hear you just share a little bit about your research Um, especially on the exclusion of women in health research and especially medical gaslighting, um, because I think we could come at it in so different, so many different directions under the umbrella of women, whether it's women generally or black women, women of certain races, trans women, et cetera. So give us a little bit of groundwork here as far as what you've found and discovered thus far. Well, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, I think this is just a total, there's a just a complete diversity and social justice theme running through all of this. And so um, I know a little bit more about certain angles on that, but I think they extrapolate to all sorts of populations that are struggling in similar ways. So I started researching in this area of like medical decision-making and doctor-patient interactions and health disparities, probably in like the mid nineties. So there's been different phases to what I've done, but even when I first started, I I was looking at diabetes and we had this huge literature on like compliance. Why don't patients just do what doctors tell them to do? Why don't they act in their own best interest? And the way we would kind of chase after this was just looking at demographics, like, well, women are more likely to do this and men are more likely to do this. And these very superficial kind of ways of thinking like who was a good compliant patient. And that came with all sorts of moral baggage. (laughs) being a good patient. Um, And so my angle was like, well, how do they even figure that out with diabetes patients? They would see them for like 15 minutes quarterly. And based on that kind of have these ideas about what people did day in, day out with with every other piece of their life. Um, And so from there, I kind of, and and it turned out from that, like it depends on like a lot of things about what happens in the interaction in the clinical room. It depends on who the doctor is and how they see their role in that relationship. And it also mattered for like the organizational things about their setting. Like, was there a lot of continuity of care in the clinic? Um, Did they see a different person every time they went in? Like all of these things um, made a difference in how compliant, quote unquote, they thought a patient was. Um, So from there, like a second phase was doing like video vignette factorial experiments, we call them. So you would have, you would make a video and you would have a script so that the actor in the video would be portraying a patient. So we could vary, was the patient male or female or 55 or 75? Um, Were they higher SES or lower SES, right? Did they work as a lawyer or construction worker? And you can get all those different combinations of actors and they video record a presentation like their patient saying to a doctor what they're up to, but they're all saying the exact same words, right? So if, if it's a case of coronary heart disease, they sh- they're all saying the stuff that should trigger a CHD diagnosis, but then of course it doesn't, <laughs> or there's variations in that. So then you can really look at who gets the right diagnosis um, and who gets sent down different kinds of pathways. And so that's the stuff that I think is probably most relevant to thinking about medical gaslighting is um, we would like 
a classic pattern that you hear a lot about and we saw in our research was that women, when you had that coronary heart disease video, everyone should get that diagnosis. We saw that men got it, older men especially, but women were less likely. And especially like the 55 year old women who are showing up with heart attacks, they were more likely, the doctors would say she might be having a heart attack, but their certainty was lower. And so then they started entertaining other diagnoses, um, including like depression and anxiety. And once you go down that diagnostic route, it's hard to come back to coronary heart disease. So that's an, an example. Um, but we see similar things playing out um, with diabetes and depression and coronary heart disease. So some of them have gender disparities. Some of them have um, age differences. And when we look at the literature more broadly, we definitely know that there's tons of um, racial disparities, disparities around trans health. Um, and so globally, we know that there's, there's a lot on the disparities. Mm -hmm. So is, is it fair to say then that, you know, if you identify as anything other than a white man, perhaps an older white man, then you might run into this gaslighting or, or under diagnosis when you're seeking medical care. I think that's, that's fair. And, you know, some people might say like, so gaslighting is a, a little bit of a loaded term because it implies that someone's being very purposeful, right? Someone's gaslighting you, they're trying. And I think there's a lot of well-intentioned providers. You know, they're not all villains, um, but they're working in systems that sort of set everyone up for uncertainty and bias to enter the, the decision-making. So one big piece of that is that the huge amount of our knowledge about medical, medical bodies and biologies is predicated completely on knowledge about white men. And so for a long time, we didn't even let women participate in clinical trials because there was this worry that they were pregnant and you could harm the, harm the fetus. Um, and so women were excluded from like the seventies until the nineties. So in the nineties, we passed a law saying that NIH has to diversify its clinical trials. But so you have this massive amount of, of knowledge that's just based on either men male animals or male cells, and just a huge assumption that you can extrapolate from what we know about that male body to all the other kinds of bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's really frightening for me because um, again, I am not a medical person by any stretch. I mean, the best you're going to get from me is like a superwoman bandaid and that's about it. I'm not going to do anything really well when it comes to medical, anything. Um, but my, my friend Stacy, who is also a triathlete, um, a cyclist and so forth, she, um, has a very deep and wide um, medical care background as a nurse practitioner and so forth. And one of the books that she suggested that I read years ago was the book Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And, you know, my, I guess my question would be, given that I, I read that book, I mostly kind of understood where that was coming from. I'm interested in understanding how, this is a selfish, selfish question, Lisa, um, how do Black communities maybe particularly Black women communities possibly fit into some of this uh, research that's happening or isn't happening because at some point, you know, we were obviously treated as three-fifths of a person and in some cases considered as animals and not human beings either. And so kind of where does that fit in? And, and the reason why I asked the question is because I read the book um, and also too, because 
I remember, Lisa, I think I shared with you that article where all of the presidents of the historically Black medical colleges and universities practically begged African-Americans to participate in some of these trials so that we can figure out what's going on with the vaccine, things like that. And so I'm just wondering how we fit into some of that testing, um, knowing that we have a history of there being very purposeful mistreatment of the communities I belong to. So kind of feeding off of your point. Well, yeah. So I made that point about medical gaslighting being kind of a loaded term, but I do not want to sound like I'm an apologist for the system or the providers because we have a lot of racist, sexist stuff built into our system. And um, and when when we have included diverse populations, we get things like Tuskegee um, and lots of reasons for people to not want to get anywhere near the healthcare system in terms of participating in research trials. So we there's a lot of cleaning up to do around this. Um, and I think of it as sort of layers of an onion, that there's multiple things going on. So sometimes people will say to me, like, well, how can we make doctors less biased? And I think, well, definitely people have their biases, but we're also baking them into an environment that has like these multiple layers of system problems that invite bias and uncertainty and mistakes. Um, So just some of the layers, for example, I talked about organizational things like continuity of care. If, If you never get to see the same patient twice, it's hard to kind of get to know what's going on with them. So you could have a well intentioned doctor who's always seeing someone new only gets to see them for 12 minutes before he has to assign a code in order to get paid that's, that's not helping things at a system level. Then you have this bedrock of knowledge that's all based on what we know about men. And that's a research thing that's out, out of the hands of the individual doctor in the doctor's office, but he's disadvantaged in that way too. But we also have like a workforce issue. Most of the doctors in this country right now are still white men. So there's that's another kind of prong for thinking about this, that we need to diversify um, the workforce so that there can be more, we call it concordance when your provider looks like you. So, and we, we tend to have better outcomes when there's patient provider concordance. So people are more satisfied with their treatment. They're more likely to follow up with the doctor or ask them to do if they look alike. So if that means if you're a white man, you've got a lot more providers who look like you than if you're in any other group. Actually, I mean, I knew the medical field was lacking in diversity in terms of race and gender, but I didn't realize the problem was still so widespread, shall we say. We're seeing more women applying to medical school than ever before. But then you, you have between the point of where they're admitted to medical school and where they're actually come out of the pipeline and are in practice, you disproportionately lose women, you disproportionately lose women of color. So the start of the pipeline is improving, okay. but we okay. still see people falling out disproportionately in those ways. Is, I mean, this is a question, a little off topic, I, I suppose, from your expertise, but are there programs designed to address that attrition? Uh, for women and women of color going through medical school? Yes. So that's a little, that is outside my expertise a little, but definitely like into STEM in generally, in general, STEM education, there's a lot of questions like why we see so many more people dropping out in these fields. So there's definitely effort in that front. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
that's, a, I mean, cause that's, we see that in higher education broadly. Right. And so looking at that in, in the medical field. So obviously our podcast is focused on sport, endurance sport. And Dr. Spencer and I were having a little chat prior to going on air and talking about how this misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis or um, kind of uh, belief that perhaps women are overreacting could translate into some pretty severe sports injuries in that maybe you have tendonitis and it's not identified as such. And then eventually that ends up being a tear, right? Which then sidelines you for much, much longer than if you had been diagnosed effectively and taken seriously initially. And so I'm wondering, Dr. Spencer, if you could share a little bit um, about how you see this perhaps playing out for women athletes, kind of all your research. I know you don't research specifically in that space, but if you could make those connections for our listeners, that would be great. Ah, well, um, you know, like I was saying in our conversation earlier, I was really excited when you guys reached out because I hadn't thought about this in the context of women athletes, but as soon as you brought it up, like the, the light bulb went on and um, there's at least two kind of themes that I think are probably really relevant to this. So one is about pain. Um, we know, especially with race, um, there's huge differences in how people are assessed in terms of pain. And so black people's pain, like for a long time, this was a very racist assumption built into our healthcare system. There was this idea that black people had thicker skin and therefore had higher tolerance of pain. I mean, that was just taken as like a reasonable thing to think. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of literature on how, you know, when black people report pain is not taken as seriously, um, it's not treated as aggressively, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that also plays out in gendered ways. So you have women athletes, you have women athletes of color, like showing up and complaining of pain that a may not be taken so seriously B like more broadly in terms of gender. So we talked about how we have this foundation knowledge is based on men and what they used to call like women's health also used to get called like bikini health because it was sort of everything that was under a bikini that was like women's health so we would assume that you were exactly the same as a man except for those areas that were covered by a bikini so basically like reproductive health then you got your own thing but otherwise that and so you I'm sure you're familiar with these longer traditions from like going back to the 1800s of women in hysteria, um, you know, their uterus is just floating free for all in their bodies and making them kind of crazy or not in touch with the reality. So there's a long history of both of these things about like women and then also pain. And I think in the context of sport, they probably play off each other. That is just I, I wish our I wish our listeners could see Lisa and I our, our expressions. Um, the moment that we mentioned bikini health, because we're like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, but the putting the dots closer together for us, Karen, I appreciate that because it makes perfect sense. That okay, let's start from unfortunately generalizing the studies that we've done primarily on men, assuming that they apply to women, except for these couple of parts. And as long as these couple of parts don't apply, we can just continue using the same methods, um, which I think is really fascinating. And maybe I'm, this is a reach here, but I'm also thinking too, some of that uh, understanding or, or misconception about pain tolerance may be connected to thoughts about childbirth as well. It's, oh, well, you know, if you can push out a baby, then you'll be fine with this little knee tear. 
No way. So I'm, I'm just wondering how that connects as me being a mother. And I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't have lasted two seconds uh, giving birth other than um, my lovely C-section that was fantastic. Um, but, you know, I'm just thinking how that could feed into some of these uh, stereotypical notions of women having a higher pain tolerance. Am I off on that? Oh, no, I think you're just spot on on that. And so we're hearing a lot about like maternal health issues right now, right? And especially black maternal health. And you hear this story circulated about Serena Williams and about how she almost died trying to have a baby in a hospital um, because people didn't listen to what she was asking for and what she was complaining about in terms of pain. Um, So that is a, a very important crushing issue. I mean, maternal mortality and morbidity for black women is several fold higher than it is for white women in this country right now, which is horrifying. Mm -hmm. And and I would imagine that um, a world-class athlete like Serena Williams really knows her body. I mean, I think I know my body pretty well after a few triathlons here and there, but a world-class athlete that's been doing this since she was a kid, I'm imagining she knows her body. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, even Lisa, the power dynamic of any doctor thinking that they know exactly the pain level that a woman is experiencing. I'm like, that is very presumptuous and, and filled with privilege. That's just not there. You know, if I, if I say it's a nine out of 10 on pain, then it's truly a nine out of 10. And if I'm a world-class athlete, that's used to every little, you know, every little sore and bruise and, and stretch, then obviously I know on the dot, you know, what I'm feeling. I just need you to provide a solution to the problem I've already identified. And so to not trust that a woman understands her body is just mind blowing to me right now, Lisa. I think that's just incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I need this. I need this conversation was going to be enlightening and maddening all at the same time. Uh, um, So, okay. So we've got, um, an athlete, a woman athlete who's experiencing some pain and they go to seek care and perhaps they're getting a feeling that maybe they're not being taken seriously, but they don't want to cause trouble because of being socialized as a woman and trying to be nice, et cetera. Like what recommendations do you have around how that behavior could be interrupted so that someone isn't going from doctor to doctor to doctor, you know, to get the, the quote unquote right answer? Mm, really important question. Um, so, you know, a first order thing is just to try to, and easier said than done, I recognize, but like encourage people to feel like they can keep pushing on that front with the doctor that they have. So um, just to import your language about Serena Williams, like the idea of like, I know my body, I know something's not right. Um, I think there's more to this than what we discussed today. This is not normal for me. Those kinds of claims um, I think are completely legit and important Um, Something that can go hand in hand with that is bringing someone with you, having an advocate or being an advocate for someone else if you can, because it's always good to have more ears um, and eyes on a scene listening to that and maybe asking more questions and maybe vouching for each other. Like this is not, you know, how her pain normally is. Um, And from there, I think seeking other doctors and maybe considering someone who has more concordance with you, if you feel like seeing someone who looks more like you would would help, then I think people should do that too. Recognizing though, with all of that, that's the onus shouldn't be on people, on patients 
to search for all of that because it's a lot of work when you're already served by definition not feeling well. Yeah, I find that we we've talked a little bit about that, uh, Shauna and I, is how the the responsibility or the blame for something not working or not going right always ends up on the shoulders of the person who is most harmed by the situation, right? So it seems like that's still a little bit of what's happening um, with this particular problem. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm wondering in terms of um, sports injuries for women you know, where might you see or imagine that this happens for folks seeking care? Like, do you have a sense of where it might show up most frequently? Well, you know, it kind of makes me think like we were talking before. So I'm, I'm not an endurance athlete and I'm not a runner, but I'm more of a, a cyclist. Like I'll do my half in metric centuries and, and some mountain biking here and there. And that makes you an endurance athlete. <laughs> oh yes. Claim it. It feels like endurance. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but something that I have noticed, and so I, I am 50 and I you know probably started really riding my bike more around 40. And I noticed, and we're here, I'm in Colorado and it's a very, lots of people out and about and lots of exercising. And I have just noticed over and over, there's just not that many women out. Um, and especially in proportion to the men. And I started really realizing even my friends who did not do that kind of outdoor exercise, um, they, they seem to think like I'm some kind of hero and radical because I get out there and do it. And I start looking at that whole scene and being like, well, wait, I feel like the men I know who are definitely older than me and silver haired, they, they feel like it's legit for them to be out there owning the road, riding in packs. And for the women, there's a smaller group of them, but I noticed they're, they are a more homogenous, less diverse group. and. And I started just feeling really agitated about like whether or not I was allowed to go have fun in my body, whether I was allowed to go do those sports, even though I didn't start when I was 18, um, whether I was allowed to just go have fun and whether I could buy clothes that were not made for a 19 year old too. Um, and so I think some of it starts like right there at the trail. If you get hurt or wherever you are, like the expectation for what you're supposed to be doing in the first place and therefore whether you should seek help for it. I think it starts really early before you ever go to the doctor. So just like reinforcing the idea like you women and everyone deserves help. Um, if they have injuries, they deserve help making that better and they deserve to be taken seriously and to not just have the bar be like, let's get you back so you can walk, but also so you can actually do your sports. And I think sometimes there's the whole paradigm out of the gate is, is different. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talk a lot about systems, right, Shauna? And so, yes, yes. Yeah. So there we're even backing out of the medical system entirely and looking at kind of our cultural system around what is acceptable for women to do. And so I could also see that translating in a medical office as whether explicitly or implicitly, well, you shouldn't have been mountain biking, right? Don't mm -hmm. you think it's about time to give that up and go do the elliptical inside like a normal lady your age? <laughs> 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and uh, Karen, to your point, um, I was very fortunate to have wonderful, um, a wonderful doctor while I was pregnant with both of my sons who are now 11 and, and eight. Um, and at that time, I was so grateful when I looked up on his wall and saw a bunch of Ironman medals and marathon medals and so forth in his office, because I knew that we could speak a similar language because he had been around, at least around women athletes that he knew our bodies can do fantastic things. And so, you know, when I was pregnant, um, especially with my youngest son, he said, I want you to keep on running as long as it feels comfortable for you, for example. Whereas I have other girlfriends of mine who were told the second that sperm met egg, you need to stop running, right? That type of thing. Um, And even when um, I got further along with my youngest son, definitely swim as much as humanly possible. Stay ready because you know, you're going to want to get right back into it after you give birth, you know, as soon as it's, it's good for you and healthy for you. And so even those expectations of speaking the same language, um, I think all of us would say on this call, okay, what's the difference between a long bike ride and a short bike ride? Because a short bike ride to a doctor athlete (laughs) is quite different then using that same language with a doctor who's not an athlete and doesn't believe in the power of women's bodies, right? So when I would say to my doctor, even while pregnant, um, are we talking about a short run as in five miles or less or like a two mile walk, right? What are we talking about here? And so the language is really similar. And so I think you're bringing up such a great point um, around, you know, are we connecting with the right person for, um, the, the right medical providers that believe in what we believe in, in regards to our bodies and what we think they can do, what we know they can do, what we've done before. Um, I think that's so key. Yeah. So at this point, what would be some of the things that we would want to advise our listeners? Because most of our listeners are those, you know, we have those athletes, of course, the majority of them are. Many of them are very hardcore athletes that have done extremely long distances, whether it's a uh, 140.6 or 70.3 triathlons, marathons, et cetera. What advice would you give them moving forward, knowing that, you know, we don't want to villainize every medical professional, but we want to make sure that our antennas stay up in regards to what we want to look out for? Well, I think you guys are, you're really spelling it out and that, um, Shauna, just the the story that you just told about when you were pregnant and your doctor encouraging you to be active as long as it felt good for you. I think that's an, an, it's important to note that concordance can come in many ways. So that could mean that you're the same race or the same gender, but it could be your perspective on things like what you're just talking about, about the athleticism or what the expectations are for women's bodies. Um, and so that's one way to think about looking for a doctor who's a good match for you is someone who understands athletes and also kind of understands what your goals are and, and your expectations for having as good of healing as possible. That's so helpful. My, um, and that brings a lot of things together in my own personal experience. I, I actually did my first triathlon when my youngest son was six weeks old. And, but I had a doctor that knew what I was going after, right? So, you know, he said, keep walking, keep swimming, do what's comfortable. Obviously a bike may not be comfortable because, you know, you're squatting and, you know, your body is kind of contorted. But we were, you know, there was concordance there around athleticism. So I appreciate that. So Lisa, maybe that's one of the big ticket items. We just want to make sure we uh, drill home with our listeners as to, you know, 
examine or reassess your medical professional team? And do you have concordance on one or more identity groups, right? Maybe that's something to advise. Yeah, I also, I do think that, um, you know, given women in particular and their socialization around niceness and not creating waves that, you know, I do not have the data to back this up, but my gut feeling is that there is data out there that, you know, women are perhaps less likely to switch providers um, because they may be more likely to think that it's it's them being unreasonable than the doctor um, or nurse practitioner or whomever not listening to them, right, or brushing them off. And so, you know, earlier, Dr. Spencer, you had said, bring a, bring a friend, bring an advocate. So it seems like, you know, if um, maybe the first thought isn't to that you've done something wrong, that the first thought should be that perhaps this, this medical professional isn't actually providing me the care that I need. And it's acceptable for me to search someone, search for someone who has that concordance piece, right, whatever that might look like. That, that feels like kind of a big step for potentially a lot of women who are seeking care. And it's hard. Like, I, I feel like I should say <laughs> I'm advocating these things, but I have more than once been in the patient's seat where when I finally got in touch with the right doctor, they were like, what? You're putting up with what? That's crazy. We can do better for you, Karen. And, and, but, and, and both of those situations I can think of by the time someone said that to me, I felt so sick and drained and it had gone on for so long that just my energy level was just, you know, down the tubes for trying to advocate for myself. So I think there's definitely power in just getting someone else with you because it sends a message to the doctors too. Like there are other people than just me who are invested in how I'm doing. And if someone else took the time to come sit with me at the doctor, that should send the, the provider a message like, we don't think this is right at home. We don't think like this is cool. What's going down. So now we've got someone else here taking time out of their day to come. So that's a pain often, you know, but, and I think, but as women, I'm sure tons of women can think like, Oh, I know lots of times I've done that for someone else, but not necessarily ask someone to come with me to serve that role of sitting there and sending that message of like, I'm invested in what happens with this person when they come home. So that's, wow. that becomes an ask of someone who's in your personal circle, as opposed to running out and finding a new doctor. So that might be an easier reach. Mm, and, and, you know, to bring home your point, because I'm thinking about when my oldest son was overdue by almost two weeks. I mean, I was just miserable at this point. Um, and I remember, you know, his dad being in that appointment with me and being much more assertive than I was because I was huge. I was exhausted. I'm like, I just want this over with enough is enough. Um, and so, you know, part of me is thinking about even the identities and the concordance of the advocate as well, because it makes me almost feel like, you know, the woman that needs to take her car to the shop and she gets the man in her life to do it rather than doing it herself, because she knows that the system is set up to get uh, a not so equitable response. And so part of me is like, no, I don't want to necessarily, I want to bring the person that I trust the most regardless of gender, but I don't want to add a gender element when I already have a big one going on as it is. Right. And so that's why I'm like, oh, this is mind blowing for me to think about, even as I think about my upcoming doctor's appointments myself um, and things I may want to do differently. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Lisa, look, my mind has been blown uh, several times during this podcast. Um, I feel like we could go on for like two or three more episodes here, but any last thoughts from you, Lisa, um, concerning Dr. Spencer's knowledge she just dropped on us because my, my mind is blown, blown, blown. No, I just think there's a lot to think about here and to really remember that this is gonna, this is potentially detrimental to our athletic abilities, right? So we need to get out there and advocate mm-hmm. for ourselves so that we aren't sidelined for longer than really is necessary. Mm-hmm. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non GMO. And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. And use the code FEISTY for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash FEISTY. So Lisa, we are rarely speechless. Rarely. We, we usually have either a thought or an opinion on something, but they were at least a few times where Dr. Spencer dropped some knowledge on us. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, did you hear what she said about bikini health? We're just going to treat women as if they're men, except for anything that's under a bikini. What in the hell? No. I mean, that's like one of the first lessons Mm -hmm. learned that I kind of garnered in my doctoral program was that, no, you cannot generalize everything to everybody. And that's exactly what we've been doing to women for, you know, the majority of medical history. Right. So yeah, yeah. that bikini health thing just blew my mind away. Oh my God. What, yeah. what were some, some standout things for you? Well, it was neat, right? Because a lot of what she talked about aligned with Dr. Stacey Sims work in sports and in women's physiology and yes. training and such, but this was more focused on actually going to a doctor's office and, you know, with, with a condition with pain or an injury and being uh, brushed mm. off. And so I actually thought it was pretty 
important when she said, bring an advocate with you. I've heard about this. I've actually never Mm. been an advocate for someone in that situation, but um, friends of mine or family members who've had cancer have often taken a family member or a friend with them because there's so much information um, that they want someone to take notes, right? Or they just need Uh, there to kind of push and ask questions because they're so overwhelmed. I hadn't necessarily Mm. thought about that in the context of being a woman seeking medical care and feeling like the um, medical provider wasn't taking me seriously and then having a person there with me that is able to put their foot down and not brush me off and kind of usher me out of the room because that 15 minutes or whatever they have with me is up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a pretty useful suggestion. Simple, but not something I'd considered before. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a simple one. And, you know, I I felt almost at a fork in the road a little bit, Lisa, because we we kind of have at least two options here. We can either choose to continue to resist uh, any bias or discrimination or gaslighting in the medical profession with the doctors we currently have, or we can start to reassess our medical team and make some sub some people out, sub some people in, make some changes, make some adjustments. But either which way you go when it comes to that fork in the road, that still leaves work and energy on us once again. And I think that's the frustration for me. And I'm I'm not saying that it's a a no-win situation, but what I am saying is that, again, this is how oppression works. Usually the individual that's most disenfranchised already is also the person that has to find the strength to resist. And I think when you're sick, when you're ill, when you're in pain, or even when you're just curious about your own health, sometimes you're even afraid, then that's like the worst time to have to get your moxie up in order to advocate for yourself. So I'm down with the the advocate or the friend or the family member who can ask those challenging questions. Um, That's one of the reasons why, you know, I I have a will, I have a living will, I have some other things in place. And um, my friend that I mentioned before, Stacy. She's responsible for executing all, on all of that. Number one, because she's extremely responsible. Number two, because she's a medical professional. And number three, I know that she can keep her wits about her when I may not be able to keep my wits about her. <laughs> I have no problem saying that. But, you know, that was something that she suggested to me before I even thought about it. I'm thinking, oh, I'll be okay. I know how yeah. to ask the hard questions. Yeah. Not necessarily when you're not feeling well or not doing well or just not in a great place mentally, physically or emotionally. Right. Yeah. And I do think it underscores a lot of what we talk about in this podcast around systems, you know, because Dr. Spencer talked about how, you know, many of these medical professions, professionals, sorry, are not, um, you know, malicious. They are uneducated on some of these right. stereotypes or behaviors, and they don't necessarily understand what it is that they're doing. And that is a product of a system, like she talked about, this layered system, this onion that has so much oppression um, against yes, women, yes. And people of color, folks with disabilities built into it. And so yes. our experiences of it, therefore, are naturally going to be different and problematic and um, hard. And so, you know, I think that we talk so frequently about systems and sometimes that can be a little difficult to grasp, but I feel like most of our listeners are going to understand the medical field, the medical system, hospitals, doctor's offices, right? Because they've all interacted at one point or another. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's where I think, you know, when it comes to these challenges, you know, I'm aware of at least a handful of folks that are really doing strong work around social determinants of health, strong work around bias and disenfranchisement in the medical community. And so I just, you know, want to continue to applaud what they're doing and and hopefully amplify their voice there because they're the ones that are going to help us all to create the change around the systems that then feeds what the actual experience is in that doctor's office, in that clinic, in PT, in OT. Um, so that's where it really kind of trickles down. So right. Lisa, I think I think we may have a, a built-in hell naw here, right? <laughs> I think we do. Yeah, big big old hell naw to these systems that um, continue to harm and gaslight women and people of color who are seeking medical care for athletic-related injuries or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Hell no. And I would just tack on to all of this, Lisa. I think I texted you about this, but I just want to share this with our listeners too, that we do have a huge hell yeah when it comes to um, shining a light on the medical community, the disenfranchisement that's going on. Oprah Winfrey has partnered up here with the Smithsonian Channel on May 1st, and they will be... Uh, sharing a documentary with us called The Color of Care, okay? And so what I really think is important if you have an opportunity to um, watch it, uh, especially given that this is going to be on racial health disparities, we would encourage you to do that. Um, You know, what I think is really key is that there's already been health disparities and the two years of COVID-19 as it was becoming this global health crisis really uh, simply underscored what was already going on. Um, And so hopefully Lisa and I will be able to uh, get the popcorn out and watch and take notes um, from the documentary. But I think it latches right on to what we're talking about today uh, when it comes to systemically substandard healthcare and what we really need to be doing about it. So uh, Oprah's Harpo Productions, Smithsonian Channel, unfazed, we're, we're going to listen up and listen into that. So really excited about that. Hell yeah, for sure. Yeah. And to wrap up, please email us or call us, leave us a voice message. If you've had yes. of being gaslighted or dismissed um, yes. when seeking medical care for athletic injury, I think we would love to hear from folks about those specific experiences because we know you're out there, but often the research is more generalized than that. And so let's, let's understand what's happened, know the signs, and then we can interrupt it. Um, So give us a call. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.